Well, good morning. I'm glad you're joining us this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am one of the pastors here, and we have been working through a series on the book of Matthew for a about three years now, but last week we took a break and we're spending three weeks looking at one passage in Ephesians 4. So if you have Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, if not, I'm going to just read it to you at the beginning. We're going to read it again at the end and we're going to do some things to break it down and take a look at it. And so let me just read the beginning of Ephesians 4 for you. It says this in verse 1, Therefore I, being Paul, he's the one who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the prisoner of the Lord, Lord, he's actually physically in prison and he refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We talked last week about uh, the manner with which you've been called. He's going to tell us what that looks like. And he says that in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent Look at that. Being diligent, aggressive to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is what we're going to look at today. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In all. Last week we talked about the enemy to unity is idolatry. And we talked about um, Titus, and Paul's writing to Titus and the warning about warning the divisive person once and maybe twice and then having nothing to do with them. The seriousness with which God takes when we prioritize our opinions or preferences over our pursuit of Him and how the imagery Scripture gives us of the body of Christ, the body of Christ, that, um, that when we pr- pr- uh, uh, when we consider our opinions and preferences above our pursuit of Christ and unity, that we are literally dividing, we are literally cutting a part of the body of Christ off and the aggressiveness and the anger that God has towards that. So we we talked last week about the importance of each one of us daily, constantly seeking to destroy the idols in our lives of self-centeredness, of, of, of self-idolatry, of, of self-loathing, so that there might be unity. Now this week, the thing that I want to talk about is, is the power of unity. Just the, just the reckless, world-changing power of a unified church. It's often said, often spoken of, that there is a distinct difference between uniformity and unity. That uniformity, everyone can look the same and walk the same and dress the same, but that's not necessarily unity, and unity doesn't require everyone, that there can be diversity in unity. And so today I want to take, I actually want to move to John 17. So if you have a Bible, you're flipping through, you can move your way towards John 17, it's towards the left. Otherwise, it's going to be up on the screen here because I want to ask the question, what does Jesus see as unity? What does Jesus see as unity? So if you have your Bibles, John 17, John 17, verse 20 and 21, it says this, 
Uh, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Now, to give you some context, Jesus is beginning what we call the high priestly prayer. It's, it's the largest single prayer recorded of Jesus in the Bible. Well, the, probably the most famous prayer is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that's not this. This is Jesus right before he's going to go to the cross. It, it's this beautiful, wonderful um, glimpse into the heart of Jesus, right, uh, in this prayer. And this is uh, towards the end of it. Jesus says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, which he's talking about his disciples because he's been praying for his disciples before this, but for those who will believe in me through their words. So, so just pause for a second. Let's set some context. Jesus is in the garden praying 2,000 years ago. We're coming on almost exactly 2,000 years ago. Jesus is praying in the garden, and as he's praying in the garden, this prayer to his Father, he sees you. This is Jesus's prayer. Just take a minute and breathe that in. The weight, the somberness, the power, the beauty of the fact that as Jesus sat in that garden 2,000 years ago, he was praying for us. He says this, this is prayer for us, that they may all be one. Now just, again, pause there for a moment. Think about of all the things Jesus could have prayed for. The myriad of things that Jesus could have prayed for. Um, uh, right theology, Jesus could have prayed for. Orthopraxy, Jesus could have prayed for. For purity, Jesus could have prayed for um, positions in governments and organizations and wealth. And uh, Jesus could have prayed for anything. Jesus could have prayed that we all had our own bass boat or, or ski boat or, you know, ocean to live on or whatever. Jesus could have prayed anything. He could have prayed that we were all Ducks fans, and it would have been right and good of him to do that, but he didn't. So the best part about this thing is that you can't harass me back. <laughs> Anyways, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's a lot of confusing back and forth. In the Greek, it's, it's more confusing. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus' prayer. The one time we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus specifically prays for you and he prays for me. That he prays for Monmouth Christian Church. His prayer is this that they may be one, that they may be one. So how are we united? What does it mean to be united, to be one? Well, the beautiful thing about Scripture so often is it just tells us, <laughs> just tells us right here, that they may be one, and this is how we're one, even as, or in the same way, or in the same nature as the Father, as Father, you are in me, and I in you. So Jesus, as he's praying, he believes that there is something that we can be in the same way that the Father and the Son are united one together, that we can be united. Now, here's an important thing to notice in this, 
Uh, Jesus and the Father are not the same in personhood. You see, unity is not in personhood. He, he, he doesn't say, he doesn't say um, even as you, God, are in me, God also. He actually, in unity, here's the crazy thing, when you're looking at this, what Jesus points out that they're united in is in what's different about them. So unity can't be Unity can't be that we all dress the same, that we're all part of the same socioeconomic status, that we all have the same background, that we all speak the same language, that we all have the same history, that we all have the same education. It can't be those things because Jesus is in factly describing their unity on purpose, defined in part by their differences. You see, a lot of times, we say uniformity and unity aren't the same thing, but we reduce unity to uniformity because uniformity is easier. It's a lot less uncomfortable if we don't have to spend the time or the work crossing boundaries and barriers and confusion and frustration and misunderstanding created by differences. But Jesus' invitation to us, to His church, to be united is something different than looking the same. Jesus says this. He says that we might be one as you are, as, even as you are in me and I in you. There's a unity, there's an intimacy, a cohesiveness. John 14, John 17, verse 4 is a little bit earlier. This is right towards the very beginning of the prayer, and I want you to see because I think this is what's telling us how Jesus is saying that although the Father and the Son are distinct and different, uh, we talk about um, uh, one God but three persons. That's what we, we believe God is, one God, that there is one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct and unique in personhood. So how are they united when they're unique in personhood? John 17 verse 4, I think, tells us how they're united, how the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. He says this in John 17 verse 4, I glorified you or I lifted you, I raised you, I gave you honor. Some, some translations even say, I honored you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. See, un unity does not come in unified personhood, in uniform personhood. Unity comes in unified purpose. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. You guys know that probably. The Dallas Cowboys or any other football team are you not united. They won't be congratulated on Sunday night football or on Monday night football or on a football game about their cohesiveness as a team simply because they all wear the same things because they all look the same. The, the unity of a team 
comes in that they are committed to the same playbook and go in the same direction, that they each have different roles and different responsibilities and different jobs. Paul talks about this all throughout his writings, especially in Ephesians, he talks about that there that they're g- different giftings and different responsibilities and different roles, but there is, just like there is with the Dallas Cowboys, there is one goal line. Insert your joke here about how they've never seen that goal line. <laughs> There is one goal. They're unified in work, in purpose, in mission. You see, the unity that Scripture speaks about is not uniformity in gifting. It's not uniformity in position. It's not, there's one passage that even talks about, it's not uniformity in the extent of grace shown to one another. It is not uniformity in socioeconomic standing. It's not uniformity in background. It's not uniformity in any category the world defines, but it is unity in mission. The way that Jesus could at the end of his prayer say, Father, make them one just as I'm in you and you're in me and we're like, we're in this together. We're, we're, we're going the same direction, that they'd be the same is because he begins his prayer with this acknowledgement that I've accomplished the work, the job. Uh, uh, Another way that you could very easily translate this that might uh, fit for our context is having accomplished the ministry which you've given to me, the work, the task you've given me. He says this at the end he says that as they are, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may also be in us. You see, Jesus' invitation to unity as a body for a church to be united is not um, a kumbaya glowing moment of everybody sitting around a circle and saying, I'm for you, and I'm for you. The kind of unity that the Scripture speaks about is united in purpose and pursuit of our Father. You see, unity, unity, unity as an activity, unity is actually a vertical activity with a horizontal benefit. Here's what I mean. Jesus' prayers that we might be one, right? We, we got that. We might be one. And then he says, this is, this is how. In the same way that you and I are one. Father, you and I are one. In the same way that we are. Would they be united in the same way that we are by, look at this, that they may also be in us. You see, unity doesn't come in the pursuit of one another. Unity comes in the pursuit of our Father. When every eye is fixed in the same direction, we will march to the same rhythm and under the same king. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of like if we were to get in a car, and, uh, and we were to get in the car, and I, and I was to say, um, hey, uh, do I go left or right here? And you go, oh, you, you go right Okay, okay. Come up next stop. Do I go left or right here? Oh, you go left. Okay, okay. Go up. Go right. Okay, go right. Uh, oh, it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. Okay. We get out, and you go, okay, here. We're here for lunch. And I look and go, this is Yang's. I thought we were going to Burgerville. 
Because you see, unity, unity comes in an agreement upon the destination, the mission, the pursuit, the work that needs to be accomplished. The unity of the church will only come as far as our pursuit of God as our King in submission to Him, pursue the mission, the work, the ministry that He's given us. As long as we wrestle around on this ground, fighting for, prioritizing our own pursuits and our own preferences, even as far as we sit around and we try and look at one another and say, come, be united with me, it will in the end fizzle. But the unique mystery of unity of the church is a body of believers devoted to nothing more than the pursuit of God and his call on their life. And when a church can be untethered from the burden and the distraction and the diverted energy of disunity and chaos and prioritizing self over others and self over the pursuit of God and and idolatry, when all those things can be removed from the church, the church can be unleashed to be an army of reckless power of grace and mercy and love to redeem and restore all that is broken. You see, so often the church is robbed of its power. So often the church has become impotent because they allow themselves individually to be distracted from their pursuit of Jesus. Look again, look at, look at, look, that they may be one. Jesus' prayer is that that we may be united. There's a really powerful implication at the end that we're going to get to, but that we may be united, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the one Lord that is Lord over all and in all and through all and for all, one, right, that we might be united. And unity comes in our pursuit of God himself and his mission and a call in our life. So the next logical, obvious question, simple question is then, well then what's the ministry? What's the work? What's the thing? What's the goal? What's the end goal? What's the, what's the goal line? What's the destination? What's the mission that we're all united in? Well, we have some obvious verses that you've probably seen before. John 3.16 tells us the mission of God on earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the mission of God to bring glory to himself and joy to his sons and daughters through his son, willing to give his son in our place that we might be reunited for his glory and our good. Jesus tells us his mission. Jesus says this in Luke 4, verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. You remember John 17, verse 4, Jesus says in his prayer to God, he says, I have finished the work that you sent me to accomplish. 
Jesus says in Luke 4, 43, at the beginning, that you sent me to proclaim the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel, the good news that there is a new, good, kind, restoring, grace-filled king that wants to bring light into the darkness and healing to the broken and bring all things back together under his good, kind reign. This is the work that Jesus was about Right before Jesus leaves and his last words to us, he tells us what we're to be about. We call it the Great Commission, which literally is the great co-mission that is a great together mission. It's the great unity mission. It's the great mission that brings us together as one body, that Jesus says that this is our job, our calling, that in our pursuit of God and our accomplishing of this task, of this work of pursuing this with everything that we are, that we might be united in a way that we're gonna see in John 17 that will change the world. But look again at this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, all authority, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. If we hope ever to see a church unleashed in the world to redeem and restore what is broken, to be the full conduit of grace and mercy into a dying world, then we must be a people ourselves who set aside every other pursuit, who lay at the foot of our King in Jesus every other passion or desire than the work he set us out to do. See, the problem is that so often the army of God walks out into the valley into make war with the dark things of the world, and we allow our hearts and our minds and our own personal preferences and opinions to begin to distract and to, and to break the lines, and, and, and one group says, well, I think we need to go this way, and I think we need to go this, and you know, I really feel like we should just stay right here. It's really comfortable here. You know, we've, we've gone too far. We've done too much. We need to go back to the way things were back here. And the army of God fractures and becomes divided, and the enemy, the very real enemy that Scripture tells us about, slowly picks us off one by one, beginning at the edges, until the whole church crumbles. But a church united under the banner of Christ, committed to the pursuit of nothing more and nothing less than the restoration of all things to be a conduit, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our job has been declared. Jesus, our good King, has said that your job is to make disciples, to lay down your cross, and to pursue Him with everything that you have. You see, unity, unity isn't so much a pursuit of our own souls as a result of our pursuit collectively. Ephesians 4, let me read it again being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, the last verse of John 17 of this passage, John 17, verse 21, the last little clause, it says this, Jesus' prayer is that we might be united, but it's for a purpose. Because he says this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Church unity is a mysterious and beautiful thing, but I'm convinced that it's not so much that there is some harmonious glow that an unbelieving world can see in a church when there is unity in a church. I believe that the reason that the world will believe that you sent me is because the army of God will be unleashed in the darkness and will not be able to be stopped. As Jesus says, that even the gates of hell will not hold back the advance of his church. So here's the truth. Here's what Scripture tells us. That God has sent us. That you are to be an ambassador that you're to be a priest, that you're to be a conduit, that you're to be a missionary, that you're to be a disciple maker, that God has sent you with a single message, that there is a new, good, kind king who wants to restore and redeem what is broken, bring life into darkness, that you have a message and that if we want to see the unleashing of the kingdom of God in our community, in some part it is dependent upon us laying down our idols and our preferences, our own pursuits and our own missions and our own visions to follow the single vision, the single mission that Jesus has given us. As far as you're unwilling to, you will find frustration and disappointment in this place. But if you can join with me, can join with us in pursuing no other goal to leverage every opportunity, every friendship, every dollar, every neighbor, every Zoom meeting that goes on for days to leverage every moment of your day so that at the end of the day, you can say the same thing that Jesus said, God, I have accomplished what you sent me to do. The church will be united and unleashed as a force, as a river that tears through the bedrock of stone, of brokenness and darkness and pain in our communities. So here's some very real points that I would suggest to you. First one is this, is that if we are going to be a church united under one king, under one banner, with one mission and one job to do, that we also must be people who lead out in showing grace to one another. There will be times where there'll be misunderstandings and there will be times where we have to have oops, sorry conversations. 
but if we are going to be people who pursue Jesus and his work first and foremost and completely, we must be people who are willing to first and foremost show grace just as he's shown grace to us. The second is this, is don't confuse the method with the mission. Don't confuse the method with the mission. God's method of reaching, making disciples throughout this world is changing constantly, continually, has changed over the last 2,000 years, and is different in different parts of the world and even in different parts of our own country. But may we be a people who single-handedly, single-focusedly, aggressively pursue this one truth that we might make disciples. The last thing I would say to this is, to you is this is in all things, fix your eyes on Jesus. The scripture says the author and perfecter of our faith, fix your eyes on him, chase after him, aggressively pursue him with everything that you are. And in time, what you will find yourself with is a, is a host, a host of believers walking side by side with you, united in our pursuit of Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, not on the media, not on social media, not on the news, not on your neighbors, not on your bank account, not on, not on anything else, but fix your eyes on Jesus and chase him first. And in him, you will find life and you will find joy and you will find restoration and meaning and goodness.